Welcome to the BJU Press Teacher Edition Podcast, where Christian educators are encouraged and inspired as we bring you interviews, practical ideas, strategies, and answer your questions about teaching in today's culture. And here's your host, Jenny Copeland. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. Thank you for choosing to listen in. Regardless of what type of day you've had or the type of day you're anticipating, we trust that in listening to this podcast, you will find encouragement as well as some practical takeaways each week. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast. And if you know of someone who might enjoy tuning in, please share the podcast information with them. Don't forget to follow us on social media as well. We are Teacher Edition Podcast on Facebook. And you can also find us on Instagram and TikTok at Teacher Edition Pod. That's Teacher Edition Pod. By the way, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it really helps out the show. And again, I just want to remind you to visit our website, TeacherEditionPodcast.com, and submit a funny story, a testimony, and a question. We know educators have great things to share, and we want to include you on our shows. Be sure to listen until the end of our interviews each time because in coming episodes, that is when we will be diving into those questions and sharing those stories. And speaking of interviews, let's get started with today's topic, which is setting up your year for critical thinking in the classroom using biblical worldview. And for that topic, we have Renton Rathbun here with us today. Welcome to the podcast, Renton. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I was first introduced to Renton a few years ago when I heard him speak, and I've had the privilege of hearing him speak multiple times since then, and have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know him and his sweet family. Renton is very knowledgeable, but very real. He doesn't hide his message. He shoots straight. And each time I'm challenged by what he has shared. He has been a classroom teacher for over two decades, and his teaching experience has included both secular and Christian colleges and universities. Renton holds a degree in English education and master's degrees in speech, writing, philosophy, and theology, and holds a PhD in apologetics. Renton is obviously not just a teacher, he's also a learner, and I really appreciate that about him. So currently, Renton is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Bob Jones University. So let's jump back to that topic. I want to read that one more time as we get started, because we know that our listeners are educators. And we know educators are most often doing two things at once, or likely more than two things at once, which means right now they're probably grading papers, vacuuming, jogging, cooking dinner, or a myriad of other things. So I want to take a moment and read that again so we can all catch the elements of the topic. So here it is. Setting up your year for critical thinking in the classroom using biblical worldview. So we're again looking at the start of a new school year, and this is often times when teachers are planning and looking for ways to set up their classrooms, spruce up their lessons. And honestly, really, it's a good time to set aside time to get back to some of those basics. And that really includes how we teach and why we teach. So Renton, if you don't mind, let's start there. What would you say is one of the most important goals of teaching? Well, I think when it comes to teaching, I think we're whether you're a Christian teacher or a secular teacher uh, or teaching in the secular world, it all comes down to that one thing we're all trying to do, which is trying to teach students how to interpret the world. I mean, we use all of our subjects in uh, from K through 12th grade to teach them how to interpret. So we have history class that teaches them how 
the world was interpreted long ago and how we interpret their interpretation and how we interpret today. And uh, literature teaches us how other people have interpreted the world through stories and, and poetry and things like that. Um, math gives us the building blocks to help us measure our interpretations. Uh, science is all interpretation. And so in that, in that small little uh, way, we are always trying to help them as they come to new things, how to interpret that through a grid that we have shown them. Right. So what, what separates us from a secular worldview or secular teaching is that we believe we want to teach our students how to interpret the world the right way. We believe there is a right way to interpret the world and that there's other ways that are wrong. And so in that case, we become very um, biased, I suppose, and intolerant and terrible um, because we believe that. But it is the the biblical worldview is... Um, is very narrow. It's a narrow road. And therefore, we have to come up with some kind of grid to help our students, not just to hand them fish, as the analogy goes, but to teach them how they're going to fish as they move out into the world and start interpreting the world. That's great. So tell me, so then what makes critical thinking so important as you're setting up a class? Teaching in the secular colleges and universities have taught me something about the product of public school education. You know, I'm not here to just, you know, cut on public schools. I know there's a lot of Christian teachers that have taught in public schools for a long time. But there is a trend, and it's something that we've had to fight uh, when you teach in public uh, realms. And that is the idea that someone, someone is learning when they have been able to uh, memorize a bunch of facts and then reproduce those facts on a piece of paper. And this is reinforced throughout public school education when, um, when the money you get from the government relies on the tests that the kids have to take. And so, you know, in order to get to receive that money, which is desperately needed, the kids have to do well on these tests. And these tests are almost exclusive, exclusively regurgitation tests. And we've taught kids that you're smart if you can regurgitate. Um, if you can memorize and reproduce what you've memorized, you're smart. And so I'll give you a little story. Um, so one of the classes I taught back in public colleges was ethics. My first question to my students on the first day of class is, I would ask them, is it wrong to murder? And thankfully, most, you know, most of the kids did believe that, uh, it is wrong to murder. So that was great. Uh, but, um, but then I would ask the next question, which is this, what makes it wrong to murder? Now, that was a question that was a lot harder for them. They knew it was wrong to murder because that's a factoid that they have learned how to learn the answer to. But what makes it wrong uh, pushed them. And so they would sit silent for quite a while. And as a good teacher, you let silence reign and make them feel uncomfortable until someone finally says something. And typically what they would say is they would say, well, it's wrong because it's against the law. And you're like, well, okay. So the only thing you from, from murdering is uh, you're pretty aware there's some kind of law against it. They go, well, no, there's, you know, I wouldn't murder even if there wasn't a law. I said, well, then what makes it wrong? 
And so we would go back and forth and it would take up pretty much the entire hour to answer that question that you would think would be quite simple. What makes it wrong to murder? And you would think that their problem is that they just don't have a good biblical worldview. And yeah, they didn't. But the real problem was that they didn't know how to think. I mean, they could have answered the question saying, well, Dr. Rathman, uh, you know, according to evolutionary theory, it's not really wrong to murder. It's just disadvantageous to a, a productive evolutionary process. And, uh, you know, if you get that out of a freshman in college, good luck. I was say, have you but, actually heard this? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty uh, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it tells me they're not thinking critically. So what we learn in education is that facts are not what we call brute facts. In other words, there's no such thing as a fact that's just a fact. And this is something that goes well into academia. I mean, in, when I was working on my philosophy degree, I had a professor who was educated in very, you know, Ivy League schools. And he said, uh, we were talking about virtue theory and all that sort of stuff. And he was saying that, you know, if you just, if you don't understand, you know, that being good to your neighbor is good, then I don't know how to help you. I remember thinking, that's all he had? There's an answer to that. And, you know, he's, he's teaching on the grad level and he's saying statements like that. In other words, he really believed that there's some facts out there that are just facts. No, nothing that tells you how you account for facts. And so critical thinking becomes super important because we're fighting a reality war right now with the world where they are depending on us believing facts are just facts and no one has to account for facts. Right. And so, you know, even if I can get into the idea of the worldview of people saying, you know, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body or gender is fluid or is a social construct, people just say those things and they can't account for how that is even possible to say because we've lost that We've lost the art of thinking. And so if we're really going to combat this world and we're going to prepare our students for the kind of combat that they're in for, then we need to prepare them by teaching them how to think critically, whether they're in kindergarten or 12th grade. Right, exactly. Now, maybe we can just step back just a little bit. We keep mentioning critical thinking. How would you define that? Yeah, that's a good question because... I spent... I go for the simple questions. Yeah. Well, it's it's good because I spent, you know, 15 years teaching in these, co in these colleges and universities where they would have all of us faculty come to these faculty, you know, forums, you know, at the beginning of the year, how they try to get you all excited for the year and whatnot. And they bring in these special speakers that are supposed to tell you how you're supposed to get you ready for the year. And they'd always bring up critical thinking and they, they would talk and talk and talk about it. But the big secret is that no one knew what it was. They never defined it. They never told you what it meant. They just said it was important and that we need kids to do it. And they even gave us some tips on how to implement the thing we've never defined. So that's why that's an important Sounds question. Helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and there's lots of technical definitions that I don't think really help anybody. So I think what a really easy way to define critical thinking is, I'd put it this way, it's the art of systematically being able to account 
for your beliefs. So I'll say that again. It's the art of systematically being able to account for your beliefs. And so beliefs are what we hold when we say we, we know a fact. Um, when we say we know a fact, we're really saying, I believe that this, that X is true. And so then we call it fact. So when I say, I believe X is true, I, I substitute that phrase with fact. But if I say, I believe this fact, then I can't really critically think about it until I have accounted for how that fact is possible. And that is at the heart of critical thinking. So what would you say, I guess we'd say, what process is going on when a student is thinking critically? Okay. So I have this, I have this theory. Well, I guess it's more, it's not really a theory. It's more of a, um, an analogy that I, I want to trademark, but I haven't able to do it yet because I don't know exactly what that process is or what trademark I actually see, means. but we're going to hear it here first, <laughs> it right? Is. It's really good. Um, okay, here we go. So, so have you, have you ever heard of a tether bowl? Oh, yes. Well, yes. I mean, you and I are Generation X. We remember the time uh, long before color was invented and fun was invented. That's right. And we they, actually had to play outside. <laughs> yes. And we had to play outside. It was terrible. It was very difficult. It was. It was. We made it, though. So, so outside, they would have these, these things called tether balls uh, that you would play with. And so what it is, for those of you that are uh, maybe millennials listening to this, uh, a tether ball is a giant pole that they, that they cement into the ground or a tire if you want to get all fancy and you want to be able to move it. And so it's cemented. So it's a cemented pole, and at the top of the pole is this rope that goes down, and that rope is tied to a ball. And what's amazing about tether balls, they had to invent a ball that a rope can be tied to it. Which yes, I think there is, is no ball like a tether ball. It's just a tether ball. No, isn't that weird? Uh, they really had to work at that, something that simple. So anyway, they made this ball uh, in a way that, you know, this rope could tie to it. So one person would be on one side, they'd hit the ball, and it'd start to wrap around the pole, and the other person would hit it. And anyway, that doesn't matter. But anyway, you're, you're picturing the tether ball in your mind right now. Oh, yes. So how does, how does knowledge even work? And I think a lot of people don't even know how knowledge works or what the process is in the human mind that happens. So if you imagine the ball, uh, we'll call that our beliefs, because the ball is the most interesting part, right? And so if we call that our beliefs, we, we have tons of those. You look on people's um, Instagram and their, you know, Facebook or whatever, if you still have that, everyone has their, their beliefs everywhere. And the beliefs are the shiny, interesting thing that everyone's, everyone wants to know about. We can, call, uh, we can even call the ball facts. Now, the reason why we have beliefs or we, be we believe in facts is because we think they're true. Now, something true needs to be, you know, cemented and solid. And so that's where the pole comes in. So we can imagine the pole being this cemented thing that doesn't change that we know is right. And that is related to our beliefs. Now, how do we connect those two things? How do we connect our beliefs to what we know is cemented in truth? Well, that has to be the rope. Now, the rope part is where we as educators live. And we can call that 
the justified part. Okay, so we have to justify our beliefs to show that they're true. Now, Plato called this, well, he didn't call it this, but we later on called this idea that we got from Plato a justified true belief, that you don't really know something unless it's a justified true belief. So Tom Cruise, um, everyone knows Tom Cruise. Uh, he does his own stunts, for goodness sake. So <laughs> Tom Cruise, um, I use him uh, as a way of describing this justified true belief because what we find in philosophy is if you don't have those three things, you really don't have knowledge. So those three, right. three have to be cycling to really know something. So Tom Cruise is a Scientologist, right? So he has a belief somewhere in his head, he believes that there is a planet far, far away in which the leader of that planet named Xenu was very upset with his people uh, and particular people in his planet and cryogenically froze them and put them on, a, on a, some kind of spaceship and they ended up on our planet and they dumped the cryogenically frozen people into our volcanoes in which their essence escaped the volcanoes and got into us and makes us think negative thoughts. And so then we need to be, we need to go to a Scientologist to become clear of these negative thoughts. I know wow. you're, you're looking at me like I'm insane, but this well. is Scientology. I, I, it's, it's true that they believe this. Okay, so Tom Cruise has a belief ball, if I can put it that way, that has these things attached to it. Now, if they're not true, but he believes them, he's, he doesn't have, it's not knowledge, okay? So you have to not just believe something, it also has to be true, okay? Because if it's not true, then you're just kind of insane. And it's not knowledge in the most, in the most technical sense as we would care about it as educators. Okay, so uh, a while ago, Tom Cruise married um, Katie Holmes. Now, Katie Holmes was Catholic. I don't know what she is now. Uh, but <laughs> at some point, Tom Cruise must have heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross and then rose again the third day. It's a, it's a Catholic belief. It's a Protestant belief. He has heard of this. Sure. Now, this is actually something that's true, okay? But Tom Cruise doesn't believe it, okay? So now you have something that's true, but it's simply not believed. And so now, again, you don't really have the true sense of knowledge because you're missing the belief aspect. Right. Now imagine you have kids that are told what is true, and they come to believe it because a grown-up is telling them this and they have no dog in the fight to doubt it, but they haven't justified it, right? They haven't been able to say, this is how I account for my beliefs, in which case they still don't have knowledge in the sense that they need to have the knowledge because that's where the critical part comes when it comes to thinking. So the truth part can come out just fine in your classroom. We are saying, this is what the Word of God says. This is what we believe. And they believe it because they believe adults. Right. And maybe they're not this at home. But if we're not teaching them on a level that's appropriate for their grade, how to trace that belief back to the truth that we hold to, 
so that they're learning how to critically think of this belief, then we're really not teaching them knowledge at all. And when one day someone does teach them um, how to justify beliefs, then they will walk away from the faith if they don't have that that connection, that justification part. Right. And so we have to strengthen that part. In fact, that's that needs to be most of what we do, um, as opposed to merely trying to show them how to reproduce truth. We need them to understand how to account for it. Absolutely. Love it. Great analogy. I love the tetherball. Yeah, you do need to pursue uh, getting that trademark there. So let's take it a step further. So we talked a lot about critical thinking. We've been talking a little bit about biblical truth. So what do critical thinking and biblical worldview have to do with each other? That's kind of a loaded question, but how would you simply put that? How do they interconnect there? Okay, yeah, because you can you could do critical thinking work and justification work uh, in a completely secular way. And so I would take you back to Romans chapter 1. Um, Romans chapter 1 tells us the heart of what's wrong with the world today. When you look at Romans chapter 1, especially at verse 18, it says that God's wrath is kindled against all the unrighteous. And the reason why his anger is kindled against the unrighteous is because they are suppressing the truth with their unrighteousness. So this is where some apologetics background comes in handy. You know, what is the problem of the unbeliever? Is it that they don't know God? Well, that's not true because we know in Romans 1, 19 and 20 that they do know. God made it known to them through creation and, and that they can know who the one true God is. They can know his nature. They can know all those things. So it's not that they don't know God, it's that they suppress the truth of God with unrighteousness. Now in Romans 1.21, it goes even further to tell us what's at the root of our sinful nature. Now if you go to the end of Romans chapter 1, it tells you all these terrible things that the fruit of that sinful nature will bring, like murdering, lying, um, not obeying parents, uh, lack of mercy. I mean, it leads to all those fruits, but that's not what depravity is. That's what it does, if I can put it that way. Romans one twenty one tells us what the root of all human depravity is. And it's not going to sound very um, impressive to us because we're going to think, no, it's got to be more than that. But no, this is the worst thing. Okay, so at the end of Romans, it tells you the fruit of how we treat each other. Um, but the, that's not the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do is do something against God himself. And Romans one twenty one says that even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks. Now, giving God thanks and honor is at the end goal of all knowledge. In other words, that little rope that goes from our belief to the truth itself has to have something to do with guiding us back to honoring and giving God thanks. And at the heart of two scientists looking at a tree and having beliefs about that tree, that that tree has DNA in it, that that tree... Uh, 
uh, participates in photosynthesis, um, that that tree is an organism. Those are beliefs about a tree that we call facts. But how those two people, one being a believer and one being an unbeliever, account for those facts has to go back to whether or not those facts honor and, and cause us to give thanks to God. Otherwise, we cannot really uh, um, account for any fact. I mean, if we really be, believe that all facts are made possible through God, then our response should be all facts will eventually give honor and thanks to God. And so when it comes to this critical thinking work, what we need to always be thinking about is how does how are the facts that I'm teaching my students going to end up tracing its way back to honoring and thanking God? And so that is where critical thinking has its space to work, okay? So that's not the answer we give every kid, right? When we say, you know, trees have, you know, have photosynthesis. Let's praise God. I mean, that's great. But that's not the answer. That's the space you live right. in. <laughs> right. The hard work is teaching students, how do I account for the tree participating in photosynthesis? And how do we get from that to it honoring and giving God thanks for that? Well, that's going to be a lot of real critical thinking work. Because once I can do that, what I'm doing is I'm accounting for the existence of that fact in a in the ultimate sense, where we have the ultimate sense of all truth is God, but it's not just God, it's how creation thanks and honors God. Right. So how do I get them to that? Yes, definitely. So right along those lines, so that you kind of did give an example, but do you have any other examples of how biblical worldview allows for critical thinking? Okay, so... Uh, this is where we might step on some feet uh, that might be of people that might be listening. But there are people that believe that there, and this is, and I, and okay, there are some people that believe that secular textbooks are very useful in the classroom, in the Christian classroom. Okay. And I understand this because for 15 years I had to use secular textbooks in, you know, as I taught in secular colleges and universities because the way sure. it works you have this little committee and they all decide this is what is needed and then then you're stuck with it. So anyway, so I get that and I understand what it's like to constantly teach against the book. But the pro there's lots of problems with that. Problem number one, um, when you teach against the book, you almost exclusively teach your students evaluation. And on the Bloom's Taxonomy scale, evaluation is is pretty high on the scale, but it's not the highest. And on Bloom's taxonomy scale, you want to get higher than just evaluation, okay? So you want to you want to get to you know identifying, you want to get right. to um, uh, you know being able to analyze and then evaluate, but you also want to get to create and formulate, yes. right? Um, if you're a good teacher, well, it's really hard to do that with secular textbooks when you're constantly just teaching against it, and so that's one problem. But the other problem is that these textbooks are not designed just to influence the student. They're designed to influence the teacher. Right. So if you go to uh, McGraw-Hill.com and you go under their biology book, 
you'll see their biology book. There should be some kind of zebra on it or something. And their biology book states this. Science is a body of knowledge. It's a body of knowledge that is understood through being able to, to have unbiased observations. And through unbiased observations, you can do experimentation and testing and all that sort of stuff, and that's science. Well, what they're getting at there, as you go through that entire book, you find that that book is designed to teach kids good guys and bad guys. So the bad guy is someone that's biased, that has some kind of agenda behind their thinking, but the good guy is someone that's neutral. In fact, one of the, one of the teaching activities is to ask the students, is skepticism or being skeptical, is that a neutral idea or a negative idea? And now what's weird about that question is that when someone says is something negative, you'd think the opposite exactly. would be positive. I was going to mention that. Yeah, neutral seems like yeah. a, an interesting opposite. Yes. And so, you know, they substitute the word positive with neutrals to help the kids understand that being skeptical is not bad. It's seeking evidence. It's desiring to know. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Neutrality is the hero. But the problem is not even uh, true scientists believe this, right? So you have a guy named Karl Popper, one of the most influential scientists during the scientific thinkers, anyway, during the 20th century, who even wrote a book about the logic of science, how science is a logical process. And he said that we need to get out of the habit of calling science a body of knowledge. And he says this because science is based on inductive reasoning. In other words, it's based on the idea of taking very specific um, examples and then applying them to a very broad idea, which in inductive reasoning, you're never able to guarantee the truth of your conclusions. That's just basic logic 101. And so he recognized that and realized that seeing science as a body of knowledge is not a good way of thinking about science. And in fact, there's another guy named Thomas Kuhn who developed the idea that all models in science or methods that we use in science require a belief system and a value system in order to make sense of those things. In other words, you need some kind of framework in order to even use a model to value the model at all, to say this is a good model. What makes you say it's a good model? Well, there's lots of beliefs and values that go behind that. And then what beliefs and values do you have to decide when that model no longer is workable? And so how does you know a biblical worldview work? Well, biblical worldview, especially in our textbooks, uh, uh, BGU Press, we start with a worldview. We don't, we don't try to imagine that there's a world where you can have um, observations that are unbiased. I mean, even if I wasn't a Christian, with my knowledge of philosophy, to hear someone say unbiased observation would make me laugh. I mean, it's so stupid to think that you can have an observation that has no categories, no criteria, no previous belief system. I mean, without those things, you can't even have an observation, because in order to have an observation, you have to name things. You have to be able to understand them within a context that you've already come to believe about the world. I mean, anyway, I'm sorry. This is so, uh, it's so bizarre. But, you know, is a ninth grader going to care? 
and say, hmm, I wonder if we really do have unbiased ops. They don't care. I mean, I mean, you're lucky if they're quiet during class. So, so they're going to read that and go, yeah, sounds good. Because, because science is the savior of neutrality. Science is the savior of facts. We don't need to have accounting for facts because all we have to do is follow the science, right? And if we follow, the, we've already accounted for our facts, um, which is not critical thinking. Science requires critical thinking. And if you're going to have critical thinking, you got to have a template of belief so that you can give value to science in the first place. Even the unbelieving, you know, scientific world understands that. And so you can see how a biblical worldview isn't something that we add to the classroom and say, okay, put your science books down for a minute, kids. We're going we're gonna to talk about Jesus, and then we're going to go back to our science books. A biblical worldview gives them the framework that they need in order to make science possible in the first place so that so their understanding of biblical worldview thinking or that critical thinking work they do actually helps them understand science better or helps them understand math better or literature better or whatever you're teaching. Biblical worldview should not be a pause in your lesson. It should be crucial to helping them understand your lesson. Yes, that's fantastic. And I love that you're bringing it right into the classroom. So as we wrap up this episode, I just have two more questions for you, if you have time for that. So let's plant this right there in the classroom, right in lesson planning. So what are some questions that I could ask myself to reveal critical thinking opportunities right there in my lesson plans? Good. Yeah. So what's wonderful about uh, these biblical worldview questions is that they remind you of why you wanted to be a teacher in the first yes. place. Yes. So as you're working on this particular subject, you should be asking yourself, first of all, what's the basis of truth of this subject? When I'm telling these, I mean, when you're a teacher, you are, your job is to tell them not just the truth, but the whole truth. And so if you're telling them truths about a subject, are you able to support those truths by saying the basis of truth for this subject is this? And if that's the case, you would be surprised how many things open up to you. Yes. Fantastic. Number two. Why does this material even matter? Because trust me, the kids are thinking it, and you're always oh, yes. going to have that one kid who's going to ask, <laughs> why do we have to do this? Why does it matter? And you poor math teachers out there who, <laughs> you know, that, that smart mouth kid that says, well, we have calculators. Why do we need this? Uh, because calculators don't teach you how to think. Right? That's right. Uh, and so the point is, is that when you have answers to why your material even matters, what makes it matter? Because I'll tell you what, that is the new fight um, in right. the world. It's exactly um, right. You can look up an interview that Jim Carrey had uh, just a while ago about why, what he thinks about the world. And the number one thing that he believes is that mattering is something that religious people have put in the world, that we shouldn't worry about things actually mattering bypassing the idea of why this subject or why even this lesson matters, um, you're doing a big disservice to your students. They need to know why it matters. It's not just a matter of trying to, uh, you know, fix the questions that are coming, but it's a matter of helping them think about this. Another question would be, how do I account for my beliefs about this subject? That facts are not just brute facts. What accounts for my beliefs that we call facts? 
Why do I believe that these are facts? How do I back that up? And how do I make connections from the subject area to the real world? Not that your classroom is not the real world, but real world experiences on how what they're learning right now relates to the world should be a great biblical worldview opportunity. Definitely. And lastly, to what degree can I place my confidence in this subject? This is huge for those of you um, that teach, obviously, science, but especially those of you that teach math. It has been my experience teaching in the secular colleges and universities that students start questioning their faith, not when they end up in a feminist lesbian uh, literature course, but when they end up in classes that seem to indicate that the math that they're learning contradicts something in the Bible, like the book of Genesis or something like that. When they see math contradicting something that they believed in the Bible, they tend to believe math first because they've never been taught the limitations of math, what math is actually supposed to do, and what it can't do. And those kind of things are so vital. How much confidence do I put in math? And if I can't put all my confidence in math, well, why not? What are the limitations of it? What can it do? And once you start establishing that with your students, what you're finding is that you're getting real good, not just critical thinking, but biblical thinking. Right. And so those those questions tend to help you kind of bring out where the biblical worldview critical thinking possibilities are. Yeah, those are fantastic. And I love how practical they are. It's just something you can keep that list right there. So I guess leading right into that, my last question for you quickly is, okay, so teachers are always looking for resources. So as a teacher, what should I be looking for in resources for biblical worldview and for critical thinking materials? Obviously, I can't just grab whatever's out there. How can I help sift through just the massive amount of resources that's out there? Yeah, and that's a great question, not just for people that are educators in schools, but people that are homeschool educators. Um, All of them have to be thinking about these things because you are the teacher and you're responsible even for the resources you use for your curriculum. And so there are four things that I would think about. Number one, find resources that take worldview or particularly biblical worldview seriously. The term biblical worldview has become so popularized that yes. you have you have companies that like, I'll just slap it on there and we'll put a verse at the beginning of the chapter and that'll do it. The problem is these people that do those sort of things uh, don't realize that they're dealing with educators and educators are smart. That's why they're educators. Of course. And so they're going to go through that. They're going to see, okay, well, you say there's biblical worldview in here, but I see you just kind of tagged in some verses and that's it. What am I supposed to do with that? So this is what I would look for. I'd look for four things. Number one, look for resources that as they're delivering worldview ideas, that they're not changing the subject from the material in the chapter. Okay. You shouldn't go from metric, learning metric units to some kind of, you know, salvation plan. There should be a clear understanding that as I'm learning this subject, it's right online with the worldview that I'm learning. Number two. Be careful of uh, of any materials that say we have biblical worldview and they just ring the same bell all the way through the book. For instance, in, in science, yes, a biblical worldview of science is that everything is designed by God, and that's wonderful. But if that's the only bell they're ringing all the way through, 
then it's not truly helpful because then the students kind of see it as predictable right. and predictability breeds contempt. That's right. And so be careful of that. Uh, number three, look for resources that actually help the under that help the student understand the material. Okay, so it's not just that it coalesces with the material, but it actually helps them advance in their understanding of the material. And the last thing I would say is that look for resources that actually have biblical worldview objectives, right? Great. I mean, if you don't have an objective, how are you going to assess it? Exactly. You're just gonna, I mean, otherwise, biblical worldview becomes an analogy that you tag on to your lesson plan. And analogies are fine, but you do need to understand if they understand. And right. so look for world, you know, biblical worldview objectives. If they have an objective, then in the assessments, they're going to have assessments for that objective. They're, they're required to. They're stuck. So let them, let them do that. And look for, and, and if you find resources that have that, you know, depend on that. I mean, let that be helpful to your work. You do not have to reinvent the wheel. In fact, at BJU Press, that is about the only place that I'm aware of, and I think I can say this, that has an actual think tank of people that get together and think about how they're going to take biblical worldview themes and carry it through the beginning to the end of the book to make sure all those things are in. I mean, who else has a think tank? I was one of the biblical worldview specialists, and we, and it was really the coolest job I've ever had. We would sit in a room and we would develop, okay, how are we going to get these ideas all the way through? And then you work with the writers and you help the writers, you know, get the vision and then their expertise kick in. I mean, no one else does that. And so look for, look for resources that take it ser so seriously they're willing to put their money into it. Um, and that's what I think BGU Press has done. Absolutely. Thank you. Those are so practical and those suggestions were just so helpful. And you know, when it comes to critical thinking, it's really easy to listen and to agree, but often that making it happen piece is where we just get hung up. So setting up critical thinking in our classrooms, it just can't be an extra. It can't be an afterthought. It really is essential. So thank you, Renton. Thank you for your time. Thank you for these fantastic insights. I really, really appreciate that. It's been a great reminder for me and I really trust it's going to be for our listeners as well. You know, each day provides so many opportunities for critical thinking and biblical worldview shaping, and we just need to look for them and embrace them. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you were challenged and encouraged as I was. Remember to go to teacheredditionpodcast.com to submit your questions for upcoming episodes. And of course, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. Now, it's time to get back to your day, but it's not just any day. Every day in the classroom is your day to impact and inspire through God's power and His grace working in you. Go do what God has called you to do.